a mother and a daughter who sang the song. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. It was a song about reminiscing. It was a, a song about longing for better and simpler times. The good old days. Did people really fall in love to stay and stand beside each other, come what may? Was a promise really something people kept, not just something they would say? Did families really bow their heads to pray? Did daddies really never go away? Oh, Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. It would be a tragedy tonight if we were to say that the thoughts of that song have no meaning. They certainly have meaning in our times because we long for better days. And there were, dad there were days when daddies really never did go away. They would stay with mama and the babies. And there were times when people did bow their heads to pray with regularity. And so that song has some merit. We like to talk about bygone days, don't we? You get a group of older people together and we'll talk about how things were in 1950 or 1970 or even 1990, you know, 1990. I remember when I was a kid, I think and that sounds like a number out of science fiction, but now it's 32 years in the past. And we're gonna ask the question tonight, were things really better? in the good old days. I think in, it is the fact that as we grow older, that we may long for yesterday, as Paul McCartney wrote in his song, or, or we may think about the Roy Clark song, yesterday when I was young. And if you listen to that song, it's about a, a, an older man who regrets his past. And he, he regrets the fact that the years have gone away. And he remembers all the things that he may have done yesterday when he was young. I think thinking that bygone days were better days is a part of the lives of so many people. But I would ask the question, would you really like to go back to the good old days? We don't have to go back very far till it would mean no microwaves. These kids over here, their world, they've never known a world without microwaves. They've never known a, a world without air conditioning in their home and in their car. They've never known a world with no cable or satellite TV. They've never known a world with no computers, internet, cell phones, texting. Would you really like to go back to when we didn't have those things? We like to reminisce, don't we, about earlier times. And I think most of us, we have, those of us who are older, we have memories of home. We think about childhood. We have memories of birthdays, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And we get nostalgic feelings when we think about those things. But I want to tell you, it's going to be the premise of our study tonight that for the most part, those days weren't really better than today. Oh, I, th I think we long for those days, maybe because there was less crime. Our homes seemed safer. And we didn't have so many fears for our children and grandchildren like we have today. How many grandparents do we have here tonight? Don't hold up your hand yet. But how many of you have fears for your grandchildren like I have for mine? Yeah. We worry about them, don't we? But I'll tell you what, if we could actually go back to those days, we would be confronted by fears that we may have forgotten. And, and the ongoing problems of life might not be very different than the problems that we have today. Someone said that the good old days are a combination of a bad memory and good imagination. We think the past was better. One sister confided in me, I, I was prepping some thoughts about the past and talking to one sister, and she said she wouldn't want to go back. She said in those days, we didn't worry about thieves breaking into our house. We were so poor, we didn't have anything worth stealing. 
And that's the way it's been, I think, with many people. But what about the Bible? Does the Bible say anything about the good old days? To our surprise, it actually does. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and in verse 10, Solomon wrote, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. And, and this verse, ladies and gentlemen, is found in a section where Solomon is contrasting wisdom and folly. And you just skim over these verses, you'll, you'll see that. He says in verse number one of chapter seven, a good name is better to, better to have than precious ointment. The day of death is the, better than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. He's talking about things that make us better in life, and he's talking about wisdom. He says in verse 5, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. He's giving practical advice, contrasting wisdom and folly. He says in verse 8, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Solomon says that it's not wise, it's a mistake to dwell on bygone days as though they were better. And all of us can think of something in the past that might be better than the present. But in the general run of life, Solomon is telling us that's not wise. We need to remember that the past wasn't all good and the present isn't all bad. Let me give you some things that are really representative of what life in America was like 100 years ago. And I know that none of us were alive 100 years ago, but just think in terms of 1922. 100 years ago. You know what life expectancy was in America in 1922? Life expectancy was 58 years. That means if I'd have been born back then, I'd have been gone 20 years ago, okay? Because I'm 78 now. And 78 is actually the life expectancy of a child born today. Thinking about children being born in 1922, infant mortality was Eight percent, that is, eight of 100 babies that were born in that year died within 12 months. In fact, it was a little worse than that just four years earlier in 1918. That was the year of the Spanish flu. Infant mortality was more than 10 percent. That meant if you, if you gave birth to a child in 1918, one out of 10 would die in that year. Gasoline. Gasoline was only 30 cents a gallon. You like that number, don't you? And strangely, that's the same price it was in 1960, just 60 years ago, 30 cents a gallon. Education, 100 years ago, only one out of six of you would graduate from high school. Why? Because you would have to quit school because you've got to go to work to help support your family. And then there's, then there's income tax. Someone says, well, income tax, that's always been around. Not exactly. 16th Amendment passed in 1913 made it legal for the federal government to levy an income tax. But you know what they said? It's only for the rich. We've heard that before, haven't we? And in 1913, that first year, only 1% of Americans paid income tax, and then they only paid 1% of their income, only for the rich by 1922. 8% of Americans were paying the income tax. What about a dozen eggs? <laughs> they were 35 cents a dozen in 1922. Someone says, wow, that was cheap, 35 cents a dozen. Maybe not, maybe that wasn't cheap, but that's what the price was. Because when you look at wages, 
for the blue-collar worker in 1922, he averaged 65 cents an hour. He worked 50 hours a week, made $33 a week, $1,700 in the course of the year. And we could go on and on with stats like this about prices and about how things have changed in the last 100 years. But note this, much of our talk about the good old days have to do with money and things. Have you ever thought about that? Someone might say, you know, when I was a boy, you could buy a brand new Chevy for $3,000. Well, that's true. My first brand new Chevy was 1968, and it was $3,200. You could do that. And someone says, wow, that was so inexpensive. And maybe not. Maybe we're looking at that all wrong, and I don't want to talk about finances, only give you this idea. If you think things were less expensive in the past, you're probably wrong. Think not in terms of dollars, but think in terms of time price. That is, hours worked to obtain necessities. For example, in 1922, the blue-collar worker could work one hour and buy 22 eggs at 35 cents a dozen. Today, at the inflated price of more than $3 a dozen for eggs, the blue-collar worker can work one hour and, may, and, and buy more than 100 eggs. So things weren't really cheaper in the good old days, though we're pretty sure they were, and that's a mistake. You know, in Ezra's time, turn with me to the book of Ezra. Did you know there was talk about the good old days there? I'm going to Ezra. I'm going to look at chapter, chapter 3, and I'm going to look at two verses, verses 12 and 13. And this is the time when the children of Israel have come home from the Babylonian captivity. They're beginning to rebuild the temple. And it tells us in verse number 12, many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men, notice who we're talking about, old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of, of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Notice the contrast. Some of these, the older persons, what were they doing? They were weeping when they saw this temple. And you want to know why? Slip over to the book of Haggai. In Haggai chapter 2, you see, you've got older people weeping. You've got younger people who appear to be shouting with joy. Well, why the difference? This was the temple for everybody. But I'm looking here at Haggai chapter 2. This is still about building the Lord's house. That foundation is being laid. And here the word of the prophet comes to Haggai saying in verse 2, Haggai 2 verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw the temple in his former glory? He's asking a question. How many of you saw the temple in his former glory? And how do you see it now? How did they see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? These older people who long for the good old days, who are thinking back to the time before the temple was destroyed, they see this new temple as nothing. Obviously, it was a smaller temple, but they're, they're not pleased. They long for the good old days, but there's more. Verse 4, the prophet says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Be strong and work. That was the message given. Why? Why, why does he have to tell Zerubbabel and Joshua, these two leading men, why does he have to tell all the people to be strong and to work? Well, because you've got some of the older ones who are just discouraged by seeing this smaller foundation of this smaller temple. And that would be a discouragement maybe to all the people. But no, there's something about this new temple that is significant. 
continue the reading in chapter 2 and in verse number 5. According to the word that I covenanted with you, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to, des to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. Do you see that? Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Be strong. Do the work. Why? Because the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. What would be greater about a smaller temple? Why, it would be this very temple that the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus would come into this temple and he would teach in this temple. The glory of this temple would be greater than the former. You cannot be discouraged, he says, by these older men who see this new temple as nothing because it is important in the plan of God. Whatever you may think about the past, may I just say to you that the present is where you and I live. And it's possible to be so consumed with the past to think of the glory of bygone days and things that we may have had in, in the past to think as though, well, those things were better than anything we've got now. But if we do that, we're almost certain to cause problems for ourselves. I think that's why Solomon gives this warning. You're going to create problems for yourself. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. You know, ladies and gentlemen, it may be 100 years from now, the year 2122. And if the world continues to stand 100 years from now, it's going to be 2122 that a preacher may stand in this pulpit. All of us will be gone. And he will reminisce. And he'll say, why, back in 2022, how primitive life was back then. And someday, you kids, you may not see this now, and it may seem to be impossible to you, but someday, if you live long enough and the world stands, you're going to be 50 years old, 60 years old, 70 years old, and young man, you're going to speak to someone and say, I remember back in 2022, the good old days. You see, this time will eventually become the good old days to the new generation. And chances are, if this young man does that, that thinking will be just as misguided then as it is right now. But why not? Why not long for the good old days? What's wrong with it? Solomon just tells us that it's not wise. And so I'm going to put four things up here on the slide that I think show you the lack of wisdom in longing for the, quote, former days. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? You don't inquire wisely when you do that. And it's easy to see why it's not wise, first of all, because you may just make yourself miserable today. <laughs> think of songs about yesterday. I referenced two of them in the beginning. Paul McCartney, yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Longing for yesterday when life was trouble-free. You know, the truth is, life was never trouble-free. Job said, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And the longer we live, the more we realize that life sometimes is just marked by lots of trouble points. But that song says, oh, yesterday, how I long for yesterday. Even the, the, the song by Roy Clark that I mentioned a moment ago, yesterday, when I was young, the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue. I teased at life as if it were a foolish game, the way the evening breeze may tease a candle flame. 
the thousand dreams I dreamed, the the splendid things I planned. I always built, alas, on weak and shifting sand. I live by night and shun the light of day, and only now I see how the years ran away yesterday when I was young. What are both of those songs about? Why, both of those songs are about how miserable I am today, how bad life is today. I wasted my opportunities. I I had good times. I didn't have problems back then. Solomon says that's not wise to, to think like that. If you dwell on the past, you may just make your life miserable today. And and then secondly, people who dwell on the past may fail to do what they should do today. They may miss today's opportunities because they're trying to recapture missed opportunities from yesterday. I remember in my first year of preaching, our first full year was 1971. I was preaching in Noblesville, Indiana, and I I was going door to door just inviting folks to come to services. And and I met an elderly lady. I I suppose she was in her 80s. Her name was Bertha. And she invited me into her house, and we had a talk, and I visited her several times. And she said, oh, my life is so hard. My life is so bad. If only my husband had listened to me when we were young. I'm I'm old and I'm poor, but I knew how to invest money. But my husband, no, he wouldn't let me do it. He spent all the money. And she's constantly thinking about the past instead of enjoying what she had for today. And, and, And instead of doing what she should do today, she's trapped in the past, wishing that somehow she could go back and fix it. You know, for some people, the past was very good. For other people, the past may have been very bad. But whatever your past was, whether it was rough or whether the road was easy, you don't live there any longer. You're not there today. And if you start worrying about the future and worrying about the past, it may cause you to stumble today. I want you to hear what Jesus said in in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, chapter. We we look at this text in Matthew 6, 33 and 34, and and we say, oh, we shouldn't worry about the future. Here's what he said. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. Jesus is giving us good advice there, not to be consumed with worry about the future. Do what you're supposed to do today. But if you spend all of your time worrying about the future or worrying about the past, you might just stumble today. And we can do better than that. And people who dwell too much on the past often fail to do what they ought to do today. Thirdly, they should not dwell on the past because they may fail to be thankful to God for today's blessings. You see, they think the past was better. The past for America was better. The past for our family was better. But the present is not so good. Why is God cheating us now? God's given all these good things in the past, but we don't have them now. And people like that feel like they've been cheated by God and they become unthankful. And then here... People wind up missing the good life that God has for them in the present. This is where you live. You live in the present. And people who dwell on the past, they fail to enjoy their job. Yes, you can enjoy working. A lot of people do. They fail to enjoy their family, the blessings of family, because Well, the past was better. Fail to enjoy what God has given them, the things that they hold in their hands, their possessions, whether it's their house or whether it's their car, whatever it may be. They're bitter about life. They can't even enjoy the daily provision of food. 
Brothers and sisters, we live in the present. And I want you to notice what Solomon said. Yeah, we've seen Ecclesiastes 7.10. But I want you to see what Solomon says about living in the present. Here's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And I want to read just three verses. I'm going to go back to that chapter later. So you might want to put a ribbon in your Bible in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 or chapter 5 and verses 18 to 20. Solomon says this. Here's what I've seen. This is one of those points in the book where Solomon is drawing conclusions. He says it is good and fitting for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life. Why not? Because God keeps him busy with the joy of of his heart. I think what Solomon is doing here is talking about our present and how we ought to enjoy life. But I want you to see something significant in these passages. Four times in three verses, Solomon mentions God. And I want you to notice the first three references. He says in verse number 18, Here's what I've seen. It's good and fitting for one to eat and drink, to enjoy the good of all of his labor. Enjoy the good of all your labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him. For it is his heritage. You see that God gives? Now there's more. Look at the next verse. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it and to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. God gives. One of the secrets to enjoyment of life today and tomorrow, if tomorrow comes, is to recognize that God is the giver. And as we appreciate God as the giver, Solomon says to enjoy life. We're supposed to take pleasure in the provisions that God has made for us in life. In life, And we should delight in the fruit of our labors. You go out and you work hard and you accomplish something in life. And you ought to enjoy the fruit of that labor. When God gives us wealth and enables us to partake of the blessings of that wealth, then enjoy that today. But if you're constantly dwelling on the past, no matter how much God gives you in the present, where's your enjoyment? Solomon shows us that these days... The present belong to us. These are good days. I know crime is rampant in America today. But you know, we go through cycles on things like that. Inflation is hurting people. But again, we go through cycles on things like that. Immorality seems to be on the increase. We have corruption in high places and so much more. But could I remind us tonight that we are alive we are free people. We live in this good land that God has given us for a little while. And we are Christians. And God is preparing us for heaven. These are good days. And the world has, as a whole, in the history of mankind, has seen very few times that are as good as the days that you and I enjoy right now. But I want you to notice one more thing in this text. I said that God is mentioned four times in three verses. I want you to notice verse 20. It says, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life. I think that's talking about the past. Why won't you dwell on the days that are gone? He says, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. I want you to think about all the good things that you have right now. To live here in the Dallas area, a wonderful place to live. Someone says, but it's hot here. It's hot in a lot of places. And it's cold in a lot of places. But this is where you've, where you've pitched your tent. It's where you've cast your lot with others. Enjoy this. When I moved to Texas... Back in 1978, 
leaving Indiana. I, I still have memories of Indiana. Every year I watch the Indy 500 back home again in Indiana. I still love that song. But I'm not back home again in Indiana. I used to tell people I got to, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as quickly as I could. And I thought of Texas, Texas is a great place to live. I call myself a born again Texan. But when I moved to Texas, I thought, wow, we're going to a great place. And I still believe that. It's not perfect. There's no place on earth, earth that is perfect. But we live in a good place. And just to be free, to be a free people, no place on earth where people have the liberty and prosperity that you and I have. We have problems too, don't we? But as you think about the past, you can let a lot of things slide because of what you have in the present. Look at that 20th verse again. For he, that is you, will not dwell unduly on the days of his life. Why not? Because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. You have grandkids? Raise your hand again if you have grandkids. Oh, yeah, look at this. I should have asked you to keep your hands up so everybody could look around and see. Are grandkids a joy to your heart? They are. Sometimes they disappoint us. Someone said, if I'd known grandkids were so much fun, I'd add them first. <laughs> if you focus on bygone days of life with its disappointments and heartaches, you just may make yourself miserable. This text is about us living in the present. And this person doesn't have to look back on the past because God is giving him blessings today. And he enjoys those things. He graciously accepts God's gift and doesn't dwell on the past. Solomon is warning us about back problems. Back problems that so many people have today. Oh, I wish I could go back and correct my mistakes. I wish I could go back and not commit that sin that I committed. I wish I could go back and make better investments. Yeah, you can wish all you want about wanting to go back, but you can't. What you need to do is deal with your mistakes and the sins that you committed in the past so you won't have to answer for them on the judgment day. And then move on to where you live in the present. We live in the present, but I want you to see another element about living in the present. We live in the present, but with eyes focused on eternity. And my text that I'm going to talk about now is from 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. And I want you to see that when you look at this text, we have, what we have in life is a gift from God. And it should create within you and me a spirit of thanksgiving, no matter how much or how little we live. I've been to Africa eight times. I've spent, I've spent as much as a month among native Africans who tonight will sleep just like they did last night on a mat, on a dirt floor, in a mud hut with a thatched roof and are thankful for what they have. Thankful for their daily food. And so many of those men in Zimbabwe. Man gets up in the morning. He's got a wife and four kids. And his objective today, his goal today, is how do I get enough food to feed my family? And I will tell you, we worked among those people, lived among them for weeks at a time. And we saw in those people joy that many people in America do not have. Because we fail to appreciate all that we have. The superabundance of blessings in this good land. Things that people over there can't even imagine as being real. What we have in life is a gift from God. and We should be thankful no matter whether we've got a little or a lot. Let's look at the text. It says, command those who are rich in this present age. Let's stop right there. Paul is telling Timothy to speak to the rich, to Christians who were rich. 
And that creates a problem in the minds of some people because some people have the idea that Christians shouldn't be prosperous, you know. I have a nice house, I have a nice car, I've got a few dollars in the bank. You, you know, that may like it's something wrong with that. There were rich Christians in the first century. There were rich followers of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. And evidently, where, where Timothy was working at this time, there were some in the church who were rich, but a charge was given to Timothy to give to them. Charge those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. It's okay to enjoy what you have labored for. God allows us to do that. Don't be ashamed if you have worked hard. You've kept your priorities right. You've been generous in giving to God. You've been generous in helping poor brethren. Don't be ashamed that God has blessed you. Sometimes I see Christians who want to apologize for their nice home or apologize for their nice car. Someone says, but doesn't the Bible warn about dangers of riches? It warns in this very text, doesn't it? Look at the text again. Charge those who are rich in this world not to be haughty. Don't think you're better than someone else because you have a nicer home. Don't think that you're superior to others because you have a, a fancier car. Don't be haughty. And don't trust in uncertain riches. That's a warning. It's not telling you to, to get rid of your wealth that you can't have any, anything nice. But it says, do not trust in those things. 1929, when the great stock market crashed, there were men who jumped out of buildings to their death. They committed suicide on that black day when the market crashed. Why? Because their God had just died. Their God was money. And their God had died. Riches are uncertain. You can be wealthy today and a month from now you can be impoverished. Your riches are either going to leave you or you're going to leave your riches. It's kind of like being a doctor, we have a doctor in our congregation, Dr. Daniel Lede. You know that every doctor eventually loses every patient? Or the patient loses the doctor because death is going to take the patient or the doctor. And in life, when it comes to riches, either your riches will leave you or you will leave your riches. In my time in Beaumont, Texas, I've done more than 150 funerals at Forest Lawn Cemetery. And in all those funerals, there's never been a U-Haul behind the hearse. You can't take it with you. I remember reading a story about one of the Vanderbilts. The story took place a little over 100 years ago. The Vanderbilt family was one of the five richest families in America. And old Mr. Vanderbilt, who had made such, so much money in oil, was in the hospital. And his, his last days were, were there. And there were all these people who were gathered in a waiting room. There were reporters who, who were waiting to put the story in the newspaper. And the family there waiting for him to die. And finally, the moment came that the wealthy old gentleman died. Doctor came out of the room and said, Mr. Vanderbilt is gone. And he spoke to the family for a few moments. The doctor spoke to the family. And then as the doctor was turning away to walk down the hall, he heard one of the family members ask another, I wonder how much did he leave? And the doctor turned and said, why, don't you know? He left it all. He didn't take any of it with him. Riches are uncertain. They will either leave you or you will leave them. This parking lot out here has lots of nice cars in it. The world lasts long enough and your car lasts long enough. Someone else is going to get your car. 
You're either going to sell it, trade it, or you're going to pass from this life and it goes to someone else. No matter how much you may love it today, you have it for only a little while. Now, the Bible warns about wealth. It warns about riches. But I want you to read the verse again. Charge those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor trust in uncertain riches. Where should your trust be? Don't trust in your Cadillac, your Mercedes, or your fine home, or your bank account. You put your trust in God, the God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Our God has blessed us. You see, this verse is about having a proper balance in life. Yeah, God has blessed you. Enjoy what you have, but don't ever trust in those things. He goes on to say, let them do good. Those who are rich in this world, let them do good. Let them be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Lee and I were in Clovis, California, just about three weeks ago. And we were staying with a family out there. They have a very nice home, a very nice piece of land. And the brother, I'll say his first name, Mark, is Mark and Terry, his wife. Mark said, God has blessed us with this nice house. And we want to use it for God. Not long ago, there was a family where the father was gone. Yeah, sometimes daddies do go away. But there's a mother and two little kids. Where are they going to go? Mark and Terry said, God has given us this house. And we want to use it to his glory. And they took that family in for a lengthy period of time. Not just a few weeks, not just a few months, but a lengthy period of time. You see, doing good with what God has given you. Being rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share what you have with others. In doing that, they store up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. We should do good with what we have. That's the message of this text. God blesses us, and now we should be a channel of blessing. God blesses other people through us. Have you ever thought that maybe one of the reasons God has given you the abundance that you have is so that you could be there to bless other people? God intended us to, to share what we have. He didn't intend that we have these things and keep them to ourselves and enjoy them alone. There are so many things in life that really are not enjoyable when you have to have them only by yourself. Solomon in another place, he said, you may accrue all these good things, but if all you can do is just sit there and stare at them, what good are they to have them? Use them for the benefit of others. Share them with others. The, the hermit, the miser, the man who hoards everything he has, he's not a happy person. He works hard but never knows the joy of sharing the fruit of his labor with others. Yes, the Bible warns us about the dangers of wealth. It's all over the Bible. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's even in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, this text that we saw a moment ago, let me go back. Let me go back to that text in Ecclesiastes. One more bump. There we go. Coming. We're still working our way back. Okay, there it is. Here's this text that we just saw from Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 to 20. Here's what I've seen. It's good and fitting to eat and drink, to enjoy the good of all his labors in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him for it's his heritage. But did you know that in that same chapter, in the verses leading up to this, it's all about warning about wealth and riches. Here it says it's okay to enjoy it. But he first tells us that we need to be conscious that there are some problems with that. And so I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 
verses 9 to 17. These are the verses that lead up to this. And as I read, notice all the warnings and concerns that Solomon expresses about having wealth and riches and the danger that it might present. Now he says in verse 9, beginning in verse 9, Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. You see, he says when your goal is riches, you're not going to be satisfied. When the more you get just makes you want more, as it is with some people, the more they get, the more they want. If you are not satisfied with enough, you will never be satisfied with more. That's what Solomon is saying here. But he has more to say. He says in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? You got to do something good with what you've got, not just to look at what you've got. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. People who are rich often have a hard time sleeping because they're worried about the stock market dropping. They're worried about the thief coming in and stealing. Wealth can hinder your sleep. Keeping money can be dangerous to your health. Look at verse number 13. There's a severe evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. Someone says, how could riches hurt you by keeping them? I remember a man reading about in the 1950s. A man was a cab driver in New York City. And he lived in a little small one-room apartment. And he was impoverished, so it seemed. He wore ragged clothes. He had little or nothing. But when he died in his meager apartment, they went in there and found hordes of cash, tens of thousands of dollars that were never put to any good use even in his own life. Keeping money can be dangerous to your health. And as, as Solomon goes on to say, he gives this word of caution that wealth and possessions can quickly perish. He says, verse 14, those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil, just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who's labored for the wind all his days? He eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. This man never enjoys what he has. But then Solomon says, look, here's what I've seen. It's good and fitting for a man to enjoy, to eat and drink, to enjoy the good of his labor. See, what Solomon is giving us is a balanced view of life. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 6 gives us, a balanced view of life. We live in a culture that ties happiness to things. And we need to learn that the best things in life are not things. Yet we still live in a material world where we have to have things to live, whether we have much or little. We can enjoy what God has given to us. But if we live in the past, we're probably not going to enjoy the present. Enjoy the gifts of God. But always do so with your eyes focused on eternity. The things we have in life, they're all temporary. All. You have a nice car? A nice home? Nice bank account. Nothing wrong with that in itself. But hold those car keys with a very loose grip. Hold your bank account with a very loose grip because it is temporary. If God has blessed you, use what you have for God's glory and for the good of others. And when you do that, you'll also be preparing your own life for the good things that God has for you in eternity. Notice that last verse, storing up for themselves. Let's talk about the man who does good with his wealth. 
He's rich in good works. He's ready to give. He's willing to share. And what's he doing? He's storing up for himself a good foundation for the time to come that he may lay hold on eternal life. We must live today in the will of God and not be paralyzed by yesterday or hypnotized by fear of the future. Rather, we must live today in the will of God and remember that the best is yet to come. That song we began with had a line in it that said, take me back to yesterday. And that song actually had many good thoughts in it, but we cannot go back to yesterday. Let's do today what our great, magnificent, and beneficent God wants us to do today. We live in the present. Let's do God's will now. And God will bless us forever. We're going to sing an invitation song. If you need to respond to the gospel invitation, maybe you've been, maybe you've been living in the present, but you've not been thinking about God. And what this lesson is about more than anything else is about thinking about God and thinking about eternity. We live in the present with eyes focused on eternity. And you need to make yourself ready for eternity if you're not. If you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the sinless one who died for sinful people like you and me, and you've never obeyed him, it's time to do that right now. What is today? This is Friday, September the 9th, 8 o'clock Central Time. This can be your time, your day, right now. If you've been avoiding obeying God, make up your mind to do this now while time and opportunity belong to you. If you need to respond to the gospel call to obey Jesus in faith, repentance, and baptism, it is the Lord who invites you to come now as we stand and sing. Come now, please. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.